Welcome nerds. It's time to debrief you on the world of pop culture. Loading up Rockabilly track. Now preparing Imperial Disguise. Preparing updates on movies, TV, wrestling and more. ANS 5.0 activates in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, we're breaking down the first three episodes of Star Wars Andor and episode six of She-Hulk. Plus, we've got a film review for Woman King. Along with that, I'll be talking House of the Dragon, and we're talking AEW Dynamite's Grand Slam. All right, so this is our final week of our Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, uh, or your choice, of course, Thor Love and Thunder Blu-ray giveaway. Remember, all you have to do if you like the show is write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or give us a five-star rating on Spotify and, of course, DM us a screenshot. Uh, If that doesn't work for you, make sure to go ahead and follow us on Twitter and retweet our pinned tweet. And once again, DM us that you want to be entered into the giveaway. But before we move on, I did want to read a couple of reviews that we got over on Apple Podcasts because we really do appreciate them and they go a long way in helping out the show. So the first one comes from Black Cell 77 who's been a longtime supporter of the show, I, I really think, like, since year one, honestly. Uh, but he wrote, These nerds are just plain awesome. I always come to the show to hear the latest news of all things nerdy, and I've been ahead of the curve when it comes to all my friends because of it. I'm always the first to know in my group because of these guys. I've been turned on to so many movies and shows because of their reviews, and I'm a big wrestling fan, so I love hearing their thoughts on the wrestling world. Great show. Keep it up, guys. P.S. This is Black Cells 77 from Instagram. <laughs> but once again, thank you so much, Black Cells. I think this is actually Jason's second review that he wrote for us. So, and even if you wrote one before, it still helps to write another one, honestly. So it's all about that algorithm. So, I mean, we really do appreciate it, Jason. And the second review comes from James5895. It reads, classic entertainment, great podcast by nerds for nerds. I'm not a huge comic book guy, but I watch every DC or Marvel property religiously, live action and animation. This podcast is essential for anyone interested in TV, film, video games, etc. They do it all with style and flair. Woo! But thank you, James, for the review. Uh, You are officially entered in the giveaway. And you know what? Since we actually read your reviews on the podcast, if you send me your address and you live in the United States, uh, we'll send you some uh, little nerd swag. But thank you for everyone who's entered the giveaway so far. Uh, Make sure to tune in next week as we announce the winner. Let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters. We're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning potential spoilers for upcoming films and shows ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. All right, up first, the MCU has found their Fantastic Four writing team. Deadline reports that writers Jeff Kaplan, who wrote and directed Burt and Arnie's um, Guide to Friendship alongside um, Ian Springer, are set to write Fantastic Four for the MCU. Deadline has also alluded that the team may have actually been working on this project for quite a while before the news of Matt Shakeman joining on as director. Fantastic Four is set for a November 8th, 2024 release. Well, I don't know either of the guys work. 
So I hope it doesn't suck, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, not too much under their belt right now, but you have to hope that, you know, they have uh, something for Fantastic Four. That's a big title for the MCU. So Kevin Foggy must have saw something in them, right? That he is, exactly. you know, trusting him with this giant Marvel property. So <laughs> here's to hoping. All right, moving on. We've got a rumor that Disney Plus has greenlit Miss Marvel season two. Daniel Richmond of The Direct claims that Disney Plus has renewed Miss Marvel for a season two, though no confirmation has actually come from Disney just yet, probably waiting till after, you know, the release of the Marvels, which is Kamala's next appearance. Yes, I also was thinking that Miss Marvel season two was all kind of hindered on the success of Marvels, but maybe not. You know, they possibly could just believe in, you know, Miss Marvel as a character and you know, want to go ahead and get started on the show, which, hey, I, I'm not upset about. Because even though I had a few gripes, you know, at the end of the day, overall, I thought the show was really enjoyable. And I'm curious to see what happens next with the character. Um, and I'm just worried that she's not going to get, like, tons of screen time in Marvels, um, mm -hmm. even though she's kind of co-headlining. Uh, you know, I and I'm sure we're not going to see a lot of her family either. And I totally fell in love with her family. So... Yeah, I mean, bring on season two of Miss Marvel, damn it. Well, up next, we have another rumor. It looks like Daredevil star Eldon Henson might return as Foggy Nelson in Daredevil Born Again. Industry insider Daniel RPK came out this past week claiming Eldon Henson has signed on to play Foggy Nelson in Daredevil Born Again. Eldon would be another former Netflix series actor to join the MCU, which if they bring him back, I could easily see Deborah Ann Wool, you know, getting the same phone call to return for Karen Page. So I don't know if it's more about like how the character was being written, but, and I know this probably isn't popular to say, I, I, I would have been okay without Eldon returning <laughs> as Falky. <laughs> I don't know, like, you know, he became really just annoyed by like season three to me. And like, once again, I think it was more about his story arc, but I don't know. Is it just I didn't me? I have a problem with the performance. <laughs> I think it's just you. Uh, I, it wasn't his performance. I want to get that straight. Like it wasn't his performance at all. It was just more of his story arc. He just felt really annoying. It was like, Matt, just move on, dude. You don't need this guy. <laughs> you know what would be hilarious if they uh, put John Favreau in that role? Since he is no. he is the original Foggy, uh -huh. goddammit. <laughs> no. <laughs> sure, it might be a little confusing, you know, with him also being happy, but whatever. That was terrible. We want nothing from that film in any future Daredevil projects. Now, when it comes to Karen, I would totally be fine with Deborah and Wool coming back because I thought she was a great actress. Like, I, I mm -hmm. you know, even though her character also annoyed me a little here and there, um, you know, especially during the Punisher series. Like for some reason, she was part of that. You remember that? Mm -hmm. like, I was like, what the fuck is Karen doing here? But she's such a great actress. I would be totally fine with her returning to that role. You know, even if this is more of a reboot, um, you know, because I feel like she could bring something different to the table. I mean, I think we've said it before, you know, we just hold the fence at like Electra and Iron Fist. And everyone else can come in. Bullseye, too. You know? I wasn't a big fan oh, of their version well, of yes. Bullseye. <laughs> and I'm not asking for Kyle and Farrell to return as Bullseye, just so you know. <laughs> I want to make that clear. Uh, before we move on to horror news, uh, I'd be remiss not to mention the big uh, Warner Brothers Discovery NBC Universal rumor that's floating around. 
So ah, as yes. Warner Brothers continues to slash the $50 billion worth of debt that they have, uh, analysts around Hollywood are kind of speculating that the company could be getting itself ready to be sold to NBC Universal as soon as 2024. And I guess that's the soonest that this could possibly go down law-wise. So, like, legally. I mean, my God, all this just feels like such a disaster for Warner Brothers. Because I can't imagine them, like, even starting to pump out, like, any, like, major, like, films or shows uh, while this whole, you know, merger takes place. Like, mm. they're, they're going to be trying to watch their bottom line. They're not going to be wanting to spend any money. So I guess we'll just have to take a wait and see attitude. Um, but usually where there's smoke, there's fire with these things. So the fact that this has gotten out there this like far this soon is not necessarily a good sign. And maybe in the long run, like, you know, all of Warner Brothers properties, which is like DC and a whole lot more, <laughs> will be in better hands, you know, underneath the NBC Universal umbrella. But, like, I look at fucking Peacock, which is just a fucking hot mess. Mm. And I can't imagine, like, them really, like, managing, you know, streaming services like HBO Max. Like, I'm sure they're going to want to just merge everything. And, oh, no, yeah. And then when it comes to, like, you know, the AEW side of things, like, you would have WWE and AEW underneath the same roof then. And regardless of AEW's contract status at the time... I just can't imagine those two entities coexisting. It just feels like NBC is going to choose to, you know, go with the more established, you know, property. Um, which, if you're looking at this from a business standpoint, only makes sense. So it just leaves so much up in the air future-wise for a lot of things that we love. <laughs> Namely, mm. you know... AEW and you know DC. Yeah, you have to think that just leaves like CBS as like the only outside of like Comcast control. You know, at that point, it's insane. Like, at what point is this considered all like a monopoly? Like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you have Disney, obviously, <laughs> who also own mm. a whole lot of shit. So, like, we're gonna start like really getting down to like the nitty gritty where we're just gonna have like two or three like giant media companies to choose from it's pretty scary AEW on disney plus though would be pretty fun <laughs> i can't imagine john moxley wearing mouse ears in the middle of the ring <laughs> bleeding from head to toe can imagine can imagine the you know casino battle royal at like the, the disney castle yeah like, or that, that scene with eddie kingston coming down the ramp with the gasoline you know bleeding to death with barbed wire wrapped around him but he's rocking the mouse ears that i mean that, that's a short way to happen well anyway speaking of hbo uh and moving on to horror uh David Cronenberg's Scanners could be possibly getting its very own TV series. Blade Disgusting got reports from THR that a TV series based on Cronenberg's Scanners could be in the works for HBO. William Bridges, who worked on Black Mirror, will be showrunner and writer, along with Yarn Demange of Lovecraft Country, set to produce and direct. David Cronenberg is also said to be on as an executive producer, with the series being described as a visceral thriller 
thriller set in the mind-bending world of Cronenberg's film. It will focus on two women living on the fringes of modern society who are pursued by relentless agents with unimaginable powers and thus must learn to work together to topple a vast conspiracy determined to bring them to heel. Now, I'm guessing that these two women also have powers, I would assume. Um, yeah. So it's like, you know, psychic warfare. Uh, hey, man, it sounds like head popping fun to me. I, I'm all for this. <laughs> uh, I feel like scanners would work very well as a series no, as well. Absolutely. And they kind of like set up the lore and everything in the film. So, you know, I, it doesn't seem like they're retelling that. I'm, mm-hmm. This is probably going to be more of a continuation of that story that's set up there. Yeah, I could definitely see this working, uh, you know, especially since it's on HBO. We know that they won't like shy away from the gore. And this wouldn't be the first like Cronenberg uh, directed film to get its own series. I believe uh, Dead Zone back in the day had a TV show, right? Uh, I don't remember, but maybe. I think it actually starred Anthony Michael Hall uh, in the Christopher Walken role. Uh, But I mean, it might be more based on uh, the Stephen King, you know, novel instead of uh, the actual film. But honestly, I have no clue. I mean, we're talking like at least a decade ago. Well, Christian, before we move on, uh, we finally got ourselves a trailer for Hulu's upcoming Hellraiser film. It's time. Greater delights await. We wish to see you proceed. Feed it. Their blood. Their pain. All for us. So we're not going to break this thing down beat for beat. I mean, it's pretty much a teaser trailer. Uh, But we start things off with a guy in a suit trying to manipulate someone into solving the puzzle box. Uh, after that, we see a bunch of people talking about the puzzle box, uh, a <laughs> whole lot of people screaming, uh, and uh-huh. we get brief, brief shots of the Cenobites, uh, Pinhead included. What did you think overall about the, uh, design of our new crew of Cenobites? I really did like the designs of this, you know, crew this time around. Um, uh, it's... I like that they're a little bit less humanoid this time than before. Like even even more so, they're more like monstrosities. I felt. Oh yeah, I could see that. You know, besides Pinhead herself. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Like I I liked that they felt a little more human before. Um, they're definitely more fleshy though. Uh, we uh-huh. they've done away with kind of like the black leather look. Um, at least that's what it seems like from like the couple of Cenobites that we actually saw. Yeah, I am hoping that that comes back, though. <laughs> yeah, see, I agree, too. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind because I do feel like they overall looked pretty damn cool. Uh, but and we didn't really get a clear shot of like any single one of them. Like they're all kind of like in the shadows. Uh, so, I mean, who knows? Maybe their design becomes just as iconic, you know, as the original Cenobites. Uh, this is just their uh, leisure attire for right now, and then we'll see them in different you sure, know, modes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that one of them definitely felt like an homage to uh, Chatterer, um, you know, one of my favorite Cenobites. But I agree, like, some of them definitely felt a lot less human. Not saying that, you know, the past Cenobites weren't, like, horrific monstrosities. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. So, but uh, 
I don't know. Overall, I thought the aesthetic was pretty cool. I like that we kind of saw like shots of what I thought was a uh, Leviathan. Uh, we'll see if they end up like, you know, traveling to like, you know, Pinhead's like hell dimension. Uh, that should be interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's really hard to get a lot out of this, you know, trailer since it's so like short. Uh, but we're not going to have to wait long since it's, you know, premiering in two weeks on Hulu, exactly. which is just crazy to me. I mean, one of the secrets to the success of the original Hellraiser was the story of Frank and Julia. I mean, don't get me wrong, like all the gore and the Cenobite sure, you know, helped. But mm. like, I love that weird twisted love story between the two. Like, is David Bruckner retelling that, like, original Clive Barker story? Or is he doing something totally, like, new and different? Uh, which, honestly, like, he's such a talented director, I would trust him. Uh, but I'm a little nervous because it just feels like Hellraiser has been, I don't know, wasting away, you know, for years with bad sequel after bad sequel. So I feel like this is a real chance for them to, like, revitalize the franchise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no way to tell from this trailer what kind of story they're going to tell, you know, right now. So, yeah, I have hope, at least. <laughs> and I guess we'll find out soon enough, October 7th. But right now it's time to talk the first three episodes of Star Wars Andor. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for Star Wars Andor ahead. You have been warned. Of all done terrible things on behalf of the Rebellion. Cassian Ander. Don't matter what you tell me or tell yourself. You'll ultimately die fighting these bastards. Wouldn't you rather give it all at once to something real? Alright, so before we go ahead and dive into things, uh... We didn't do this our usual breakdown style since it was, you know, what, three episodes. Uh, so this is definitely more of a summary, uh, but uh, there's still a lot to talk about. All right. So Andor takes place on the Star Wars timeline in the year five BBY, which is roughly five years before the end events of Rogue One. So the show begins on Morlana One in this Blade Runner looking red light district. Uh, Cassian is looking for his sister from Canari inside a brothel, which is weird to say, talking about a Star Wars show, but it is what it is. Uh, but he has no luck in finding her. Uh, afterwards, two shady pre-more authority security officers try to shake him down in an alley. Uh, uh, Cassian resists, accidentally killing one of them, and then he chooses reluctantly to kill the other so there's no witnesses. Yeah, this was a great way to kind of show us where Andor is in his, like, you know, murderous ways. <laughs> he's definitely, like, more conscientious of what he's doing here. Like, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily call him a murderer. You know, it, it did feel like an accident, and he definitely felt reluctant to have to, like, you know off the other cop but at the same uh -huh. time like he's definitely more out for his own self-interest uh like as we see in the rest of the episodes i mean he feels kind of like a low life he owes a lot of people money it seems like a lot of people are looking for him <laughs> it just feels like he's got a lot of rage and not a lot of direction but anyway, moving on, this event leads to middle management douchebag, uh, pre-war officer card to take it upon himself to try to hunt down Cassian, even though his superiors seem completely disinterested. And 
basically tells him to just write it off. I love the disappointment like on his face, realizing that his company is capable of just, you know, letting two people die and moving on from it. It's so funny because even though this is Star Wars, like I think everyone knows someone like Karn you know, in their lives. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, just the, the, the line about his uniform and everything. Like, did you add piping to your uniform? Like how much <laughs> pride he takes in being an inspector was pretty fucking ridiculous. So, uh, yeah, I hate I hated this character within like the first 10 seconds of him being on the screen. And I, I feel like he's, you know, a prime candidate for the Empire at some oh, point oh, in his absolutely. life. Absolutely. Absolutely. He actually reminded me a lot of General Hux in the, uh, the mm, sequel yeah. trilogy. So throughout the first three episodes, we get a bit of Cassian's origin story told through flashbacks. We find out that seemingly all the adults were killed on his home planet of Canari because of some kind of mining accident. Uh, so the children are forced to fend for themselves in this Lost Boys looking tribe that includes Cassian and his little sister. I thought it was a cool choice for them not like giving us their language. Like there was no subtitles or anything for that. I thought that was interesting. It's a way to have them tell the story in a completely different way than what we've seen in most of Star Wars. Yeah, because yeah, you're right. We would usually be getting subtitles. So I kind of mm -hmm. dug that also because you knew still exactly what they were saying somehow, right? Yes. During these flashbacks, we see salvage hunters led by Marva and B2 rescue Cassian as they find him on a newly crashed ship uh, after Cassian and his Lord of the Flies clan went to explore the wreckage. Even though this ends up causing Cassian to be separated from his sister, Marva truly seems to believe that she's doing the right thing since Republic ships would be there soon, and in her mind, she's keeping Cassian safe. I'm honestly really curious to know what was going on on that ship. I mean, everyone was like, you know, had yellow texture to them. There was a yellow smoke coming from it. I don't know what brought down the ship. I don't know if they'll explore that, but I'm yeah. just curious. I don't know if it was like a case of like chemical warfare or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it looked like they, they've they been exposed to some kind of like chemical. They all had masks on also. And then Marva uh, had B2 scan the atmosphere too while she was entering the ship. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah. Also, someone pointed out online that it looked like on a lot of their uniforms, there were uh, Separatist logos. So I'm wondering if this took place like after the events of Revenge of the Sith with like the Separatists like on the run from, you know, the newly formed Empire. I could see that. I definitely was expecting clones to be on that ship, though. Like, I kept waiting for one of them to show up. But it, yeah, if it's just a separatist ship, which even it, it would have to, I feel like it would have to be after revenge, because why would clones ever use, you know, chemical warfare uh, in a battle? I have no clue. I have no clue. And I don't know if it's a case of chemical warfare or they just got exposed. I, I have no clue. <laughs> uh -huh. And there's a lot of like question marks attached to all these like flashback sequences. Another interesting note is later on, we find out that Marva and Cassian have gone to great lengths to protect the secret that he's actually from Canari for some reason. So there definitely feels like there's a mystery at play when it comes to his home planet. What that could possibly be? I have no clue. It just makes me think back to his line about, you know, having been in this fight since he was six years old. I'm like, is, is there more to what happened to him as a kid? Was there any type of like resistance he was a part of other than, you know, when him being a preteen with that tribe? And then you have that whole dialogue between him and Luthen later on in uh, episode three, 
where it seems mm-hmm. like Luthen knows a lot about his past. Um, and Casa doesn't look like he's six in these flashbacks. Like, no. he looks like he's about 10 or 11. So who the fuck knows, you know, what happened in the last, you know, four or five years? Because it does feel like this, like, tribe of children have been together for a while. Or maybe he's just a really big six-year-old. <laughs> but regardless, Cassian still lives with Marva and B2 on Ferrix, a trading outpost slash shipyard planet. Uh, so he must have forgiven her for, you know, breaking up his family because now they kind of have their very own dysfunctional family. It's here that we meet Bix, who Cassian wants help from, connecting to her black market buyer connection. Uh, as Cassian has just recently acquired a star path unit a really valuable piece of imperial navigation technology uh bix and cassian obviously had some kind of prior history together as this totally makes bix's boyfriend tim jealous so jealous in fact that he chooses to rat out cassian to the pre-more inspectors who just issued a wanted bulletin trying to find him but you know what? Karma's a bitch, even in a galaxy far, far away, as Tim ends up getting his ass shot by the inspectors as they're chasing after Cassian and harassing Bix. Never narc on your friends, all right? That's right, Christian. <laughs> even in space, snitches get stitches. So while all this is going down, Cassian is in a mad rush to meet up with Bix's buyer, Luthen Rail, so he can sell the Starpath unit to get enough credits to leave the planet. Luckily, the shipyard workers are able able to signal Cassian that trouble's on the way in the form of the inspectors. I love how, first off, I loved how confused the guards were about, you know, them sending out a warning signal. Like, it was pretty obvious what they were doing to, like, warn, oh, you know, there's troops coming this direction. They were so confused by that. But I also really liked um, Marva's delivery of, like, Hey, it's going to be worse once that banging stops. Yeah. You know, when she brings up, like, all the sound is going to shoot there. I thought that was really awesome. She was straight up, like, taunting them. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Yeah, that was a great monologue. And I'm really, like, digging Marvel and B2. So I'm hoping that this isn't the last we really see of them. I was honestly surprised that um, that officer didn't just take B2 and try to, like, get its memories or something. Like, try to figure out where he was. Christian, I have no idea how droid technology works, man. (laughs) I know, I know. But if he was smart, he would use Marva to kind of, like, bait Cassian you know, into coming out of height. It just doesn't have that killer instinct yet. But after this episode, I'm, I'm sure it, it will exist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In a tense moment, while all this is going down, Luthen, who seems less interested in the Star Pathfinder and more interested in Cassian, tries to talk him into joining what must be the beginnings of the Rebellion. So what do you think the deal is with Luthen here? Like, how does he seemingly know so much about uh, Cassian's past. I'm not sure. Like, I'm thinking maybe at some point he was trying to set up a squad or something back in the day. He was looking at possible agents <laughs> to work for him. I'm actually wondering if, like, Marva doesn't have some kind of connection to him, you know, and she's mm. trying to, like, you know, get Cassian on the right path. I definitely think we'll see flashbacks with Luthen as well, especially since the trailer showed him with like multiple different hair lengths throughout the the entire trailer. No, I agree. And also, like, I have to say, like, I've really enjoyed like how they've handled the flashbacks so far. Um, 
like they don't feel like they slow down the momentum of like any of the story like the current story um where like you know book of boba fett like they would do like full episodes of flashbacks yes. and, you know you didn't know whether you're coming or going in that series so i just feel like having it all like intertwined around like the current day story just works so much better. Lastly, we see Cassian and Luthen manage to escape the planet using their cunning, leaving the pre-war inspectors with their pants down in defeat, with Officer Karn looking extremely traumatized from the events. I know I would have been traumatized being inside that warehouse and seeing how all those fucking things can just fall down from the ceiling at any point. <laughs> uh, that that was awful design. Uh <laughs> Now, do you think that we're going to see more of Karn in the future or after the mess that he caused? Like, is he just done with law enforcement? Well, I think he's going to be kind of our juxtaposition to Andor. I think he's going to go try and become like an Imperial officer like from here. Like, this is his call to action now. He wants to, you know, get more involved if he can and probably learn how to handle situations like this. Yeah, I could either see like two paths for the character, either like that's it. And I mean, especially since he, you know, directly disobeyed an order from a higher up uh -huh. or like this is just going to fuel the fire. And, you know, now he's going to become obsessed with Cassian and like hunting him down. Like in my vision, I imagine, you know, Andor's gonna like start doing spy missions and by the end like maybe last few episodes they just run into each other on opposite ends of this and that like blows his cover or something yeah I mean it could be a cool storyline where like after this like you know huge defeat it really like fuels him into becoming this like absolute monster and you know uh-huh because I don't think pre the Primor is actually like part of the Empire right they're just more adjacent to the Empire, they just serve them. Yeah, they just serve them. Episode three ends with a nice little bow uh, with a parallel playing between the past and present narratives we got in the first three episodes with Cassian being forced to leave everything behind once again like he did in his youth. Yeah, I love the way it was shot to just how well it just went back and forth. You just got that same look in both shots. I thought that was really well done. And I feel like that's like a direct product of having someone like, you know, Tony Gilroy, you know, on board helming the ship, you know, since he did Rogue One and, you know, knowing what a absolute classic that film is. You know, and I, I mean, bravo to Disney for bringing him back for this. I will say I didn't feel like this felt the exact same as Rogue One, but this is in its own, you know, still gritty enough of, of a oh, show. Oh, I agree 100%. So and I think part of it is because there was a lot less Star Wars involved in this oh, first yeah. <laughs> three episodes now i mean i feel like we're going to be getting a lot more like into the star wars of everything you know in you know these upcoming episodes i mean and we know that from the trailers but i definitely kind of appreciate them doing something outside of the box and really just focusing on cassia and then instead of like you know, eye candy of like, oh, look, cool yes. stormtroopers. Oh, great droids. You know, oh, I recognize that alien. You know, they're really just solely focusing on the story. Um, and like you said, like, I loved like the grit. I love the serious tone. I mean, like, I never thought we'd see a Star Wars brothel. Like, do you think there'll be a play set, Christian? <laughs> Maybe Lego? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I felt like all those different elements really made the show feel like incredibly like fresh and unique, especially compared to like The Mandalorian and, you know, Boba Fett, which felt like 
kind of the same series, right? And don't get me wrong, I love both of those shows, but this was something different. And I think that's important to do to, you know, establish these different tones, you know, story-wise, because it gives you so much more to work with, you know, storytelling-wise. Exactly. I mean, we bring this up with Marvel all the time, where we want the series to feel different. And this definitely is different than anything we've gotten so far in uh, Disney Star Wars. But all right, join us next week as we break down episode four of Andor. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Hey you, got bush? Well, you definitely do if you haven't tried the best products from our sponsor today, Manscaped. Taking control of your bush is important. These products are so good, you're gonna be showing pride in your new bush-free yard. It's a fact that you'll have the best kept nutsack on the cul-de-sac, so save big and be the most hygienic version of yourself by using our discount code 20NerdShow for 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. Listeners, you know I don't got bush because Manscaped helps keep my rocket raccoon high and tight. Whether you're looking to go bald like an eagle or just in need of a safe trim, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. Listeners, the grooming package I highly recommend is the Performance Package 4.0. That's because inside the package is the Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is a bush's worst nightmare. This trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents and shave hair on loose skin thanks to its ceramic blades and advanced skin safe technology. No need for night vision goggles, this trimmer has a LED light to allow you to mow the lawn in the dark. It's basic landscaping. When you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller. The second best tool in the performance package is the Weed Whacker. This fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer will make sure your nasty nose pubes are under control. Instantly add some pep to your step with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray-On Testy Toner. With a performance package purchase, you get two free gifts, a shed travel bag and the patterned high performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers. They have a bunch of other products on their website to help you maximize your confidence and grooming game. So listeners get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at manscaped.com. Kate Bush may be trending at the moment, but your bush needs some help. That's right, so make sure you're running up that hill and get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com by using our code 20NerdShow. It's time to level up your grooming game with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for House of the Dragon ahead. You have been warned. You want me to be your whore? I want us to continue as we began with you as my sworn protector, my white knight. I took an oath. As a a knight of of your king's guard, an oath of chastity. I've broken it. I've soiled my, my, my white cloak. It is the only thing I have to my fucking name. So what's Game of Thrones without a wedding, right? In episode five, we got the union between Rhaenyra and the son of House Valerian, Laenor. However, Laenor and Rhaenyra's marriage is far from anything to do with, you know, love. They're simply putting duty above themselves, which leads Rhaenyra to come up with the devious compromise to their situation as they basically agree to have an open relationship as they are kind of both involved with others outside of their current union. This was definitely something I thought would get, you know, stretched out a little bit further in the show, especially from what we've seen in the previous version of Game of Thrones. 
but you know, the ultimate demise of their love lives was inevitable. Sir Kristen basically confesses his love to Rhaenyra this episode and asks to take her away from Westeros, um, you know, leave it all behind so they can live together without, you know, the pressures of the crown and be happy. But Rhaenyra has, you know, way too much ambition to want to be queen to really settle for anything less at this point, which was kind of the most we've seen her desire for the Iron Throne on display here this season and kind of showed us more of a cutthroat character that she may become later on. This episode also being the send-off of Millie Alcock was again another strong performance from the actress and it's definitely sad to see her go as we move on into the future versions of these characters. And speaking of characters getting big casting changes, we also had Emily Carey's Allison Hightower who was an absolute scene stealer on this week's episode. The pressure of being queen and ultimately getting her father removed as the hand has forced her to kind of nut up or shut up as the impending war for the throne nears. Alicent's father, Otto, leaves her with the warning of Rhaenyra's claim to the throne, starting a war that will get Alicent's children put in the crossfire as those are the ones that the people are really gonna rally behind to take the throne over Rhaenyra since you know she birthed the king's you know, firstborn son. Alicent also finds out that Rhaenyra actually did lie to her about her situation the night that Daemon returned in the previous episode, learning the truth about what happened from Sir Criston, who just kind of blurts it out to her when he thinks she's you know, interrogating him about it. We also get introduced to Larys Strong, who is the Hand's son, who brought it to Alicent's attention that you know Rhaenyra was given what's most likely the equivalent to the morning after pill, which was delivered in a way that made you know Larys seem like he's going to be you know a character that might be stirring up the pot later in the uh, season. But all in all, this was really a coming out for Alicent as she you know made her way into the wedding in the war color of the High Towers, ready to stand her ground against her you know former friend and future adversary. The whole moment really made it seem like the story is shifting from Damon versus Rhaenyra to Alicent versus Rhaenyra, which wasn't where I thought this was heading at all in the, you know, the first episode. Speaking of Damon, he was, you know, back on his bullshit again uh, when he crashed the wedding after maybe killing his wife. It happened off screen, but it's heavily implied. And I love that this is something that they kind of added to this story. You know, this was something in the book was only like a one line sentence on how uh, Damon's wife got killed by, in an accident with her horse. But it definitely lines up with Damon's character to maybe have been the reason she actually died. Damon during all this really seems to be uh, playing the field as to the many possibilities of making alliances, as he did show a lot of attention and interest in the Valerian's daughter, Lena. But at the same time, he again came on to Rhaenyra, nearly kissing her in front of everyone, including the king, at this celebration that was supposed to be the start of a week-long event, ending in the marriage itself. But nothing can ever you know, really be happy in Viserys' life, it seems. So when we have this room full of combustible elements, it was clear something was going to go wrong. And and of course it did, but I never expected the lovers of our newlyweds to be the catalyst as this show did a great job at creating a chaotic scene where you can really put yourself in Viserys' shoes as he looks on at the crowd of screaming highborns not knowing what's happening or where his daughter even is in all this chaos. It was extremely well shot and had me on the edge of my seat. After this, Viserys decides to just have 
have a shotgun wedding that night with the groom even covered in the blood of his secret lover after Sir Kristen murdered him. Which it seemed like he was being threatened by Lenor's lover, who was way too ambitious, you know, for his own good, it seemed in this episode. Like he was already planning to like be in control of Rhaenyra for some reason by only after meeting her for like two minutes. Viserys also throughout the episode, you know, shows that his health is definitely, you know, in decline. And by the end of this passes out after they say their vows. Um, I thought in this moment he was actually dead, but that was clearly not the case as we see in the preview for the rest of the season that he's still going to be around in some form. I think I would have been okay with this being the end of the series, but I have loved Patty Considine's performance as the king, so I'm interested in what, you know, will be the actual end to this character. But you know, all in all, the show has definitely picked up in a good way for me. I still wasn't the biggest fan of the battle um, with the crab feeder, which I know a lot of other people did dislike that as much as I did but I feel like the show has done a better job with you know plotting side and the relationship side of everything in this story um, compared to the actual battles so when the war actually begins and we see you know all these battles going on in the future well you know I'm gonna be a little bit more reserved on how that all plays out but for now you'll just have to join us next week for our thoughts on episode 6 of House of the Dragon all right, Christian, let's go ahead and move on because it's time to break down episode six of She-Hulk. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for She-Hulk ahead. You have been warned. Titania. Hey, girl. Hey. You made it. You're so busy, though. You have like 5,000 businesses. I do. <laughs> what? No, no. She has weaseled her way into this wedding to mess with me. That is so obvious. Why does nobody else see that? Okay, you're being very loud. Jen, I hear you again. I do. But you sound insane right now. <laughs> this week, our hero She-Hulk gets invited to be a bridesmaid at her old high school friend's wedding. Jen's pretty excited about this as she will be able to show off as She-Hulk in her new hero designer dresses. And per usual, the show addresses the audience with a She-Hulk fourth wall break, letting us know that yes, this will be a self-contained wedding episode. I do like how the writers are like one step ahead of us and like they uh -huh. can, they, they obviously <laughs> already knew what our complaints would be. <laughs> with this episode. My argument is this is the third standalone episode that we've got in, in a row. Um, but yeah. it is what it is. Jen then arrives at her friend Lulu's venue, feeling you know more confident than ever in her Hulk form, sporting a new dress of all things. But Lulu is less than pleased to have the attention stripped away from her, you know, being the bride and all, and requests Jed not to be She-Hulk during the wedding. Now, I'm not a fashionista, Christian. But, like, she was supposedly getting all these, like, new, like, designer clothes from this, like, ultra-talented, you know, fashion designer. And uh -huh. what she shows up in is fucking polka dots. <laughs> I guess that's I mean, maybe in? that's the trend right now. But I was like, really? That totally looked off the rack to me, Christian. I was more annoyed with the fact that it didn't really feel like the dress shrunk down with her. Like, it felt like it was still She-Hulk-sized when she goes back to regular no. Jen. Uh, no, Tatiana is, like, a small little thing. So if that yes, if that but... dress was the same size and it didn't shrink down with her, she'd be swimming in it. I guess, but she had to carry it with her on her side. I know. But Christian, I know it's more about you seeing it shrink down with her. I know how you are. Uh-huh. <laughs> you love those details. 
Before we continue with the wedding story, we also got to, you know, introduce the B storyline that has Nikki helping Mallory with a case. Mallory is dealing with a new client in Craig Morris, aka Mr. Immortal, who has been ending marriages with, you know, people by faking his death. This has of course caused trauma for his past lovers, and they are all in kind of pursuit of compensation for his actions. In the comics, Mr. Immortal first appeared in West Coast Avengers number 46, where he was part of the Hawkeye train team, the Great Lakes Avengers. So yeah, I mean, Mr. Immortal is a total like grade, like D character, honestly. Um, a total okay, like okay. comedic character. Uh, I mean, the Great Lakes Avengers uh, consist of team members like Flatman and Big Bertha and you know the one breakout character uh Squirrel Girl uh was actually part of the team it's also teased in the comics that uh Mr. Immortal might actually be a mutant also um but it doesn't feel like they're gonna really dive into any of that here it would be fun if they kept like every time they brought up a kind of slightly mutant character they played the uh, x-men theme just like they did in uh Miss Marvel kind of funny Right, like just poking fun at that moment. Uh -huh. Even though I loved it until they popped for it. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't even bother giving us a origin story for Titania, right? Nope, she's just uh, super strong. Yeah. As far as we know. I guess this is just the new MCU. We got a lot of different, you know, people running around with powers nowadays. Back at the wedding, Jen gets a shock when she finds out that Titania was also invited to the wedding. While Jen accuses Titania of coming in order to get revenge, Titania still denies it, and Lulu seems to side with anyone but Jen, so she's allowed to stay. I'm not gonna lie, I'm kind of enjoying like just how absolutely like superficial the feud is between like She-Hulk and Titania. Like, I mean, it's total, like, sitcom stuff, but, I mean, Aww. that's what the show is. So, like, I kind of dig that, you know, of course Titania, like, shows up at, you know, Jen's longtime friend's wedding, you know, out of nowhere. Call me crazy, but was there any reason we never saw the groom of this wedding? I'll be totally honest, Christian, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are, is this someone special or is this just not important? Probably just not important. <laughs> You're probably right. I mean, he wasn't amongst the groomsmen uh, who like wrinkled up their uh, tuxes playing Mario Kart or whatever. I, I mean, they didn't clarify which one was the groom. So, okay. I don't know. Once again, Christian loves those details. <laughs> Dear Marvel. <laughs> Getting some air, Jen gets approached by a guy named Josh, who seems to be, you know, genuinely interested in her. However, their pleasant conversation gets interrupted by Lulu, who she and her bridesmaids seem to be using Jen as their errand girl, especially since she seems to never, you know, really say no to anyone, as we've seen throughout this series. Yeah, I mean, part of Jen's arc feels like her finally, you know, standing up for herself and growing a spine, because she does feel so passive. Mm -hmm. So like she needs to kind of like regain that confidence. And I, I and I think that's why I, I kind of did enjoy, you know, this story compared to like the last two episodes where this was more character driven with Jen kind of, you know, getting tired of being a doormat and wanting to have just one day where she feels like a big deal. Like, you know, like that was part of her showing up as like She-Hulk, you know, to the wedding at first which I could even tell you was like a big no-no. <laughs> 
You can't steal the spotlight from the bride. Yeah, she was treating it more like a high school reunion than a wedding at that point. Yeah, you know, I want to show off that I'm successful. It's like, hey. but I think that was the the, the rehearsal dinner. You know, uh-huh. so I'm gonna give her a pass. With the many tasks that she's been given as a bridesmaid, Jen later finds out that she's basically going to have to walk a dog down the aisle, which just leads to her ultimately getting shit faced at the reception, which her cousin is of course DJing as well. The drunk Jen ends up chit-chatting more with Josh as they continue to hit it off and Josh continues to seem actually interested in Jen rather than She-Hulk for a change. So yeah, Josh definitely feels like way too nice of a guy. So I feel like he's definitely suspect right off the bat, but you know, I'm not saying he's Mephisto or anything, but (laughs) he's probably Mephisto. I don't know. I feel like it's a red herring. I really do. I feel like it's too obvious that it could possibly be Josh as one of these people going after her. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's Josh and Todd, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me with my uh, tinfoil hat on. Well, I'll, I'll explain more when we get closer to the end. Jen's chat with Josh abruptly ends when she suddenly has to vomit from all that she's been drinking that night. But while Jen is at her lowest of the day, Titania finally attacks her. It seems that Titania is actually jealous of She-Hulk as she refuses to fight Jen unless she hulks up, wanting to prove that Titania is better than She-Hulk. Unfortunately, Titania only embarrasses herself further after getting her veneers busted by the Hulkster. What you gonna do, brother? Um, I definitely don't think WWE is going to let the Hulkster stick to Jen. So. <laughs> Although they do have some weird working agreement, or at least they used to, where they could use a Hulk for Hulk Hogan. Where if you look at a bunch of like 80s merch for Hulk Hogan, there is like a Marvel uh, copyright also oh, really? at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's mar- a Marvel copyright or just like, you know, fine print, like, you know, in fair use, you know, one of those deals. But anyway, I was happy that we got a little more like action uh, this episode uh, with, you know, Jen and Titania, like, you know, throwing down finally, even though it was pretty brief. But like you, when it comes to like those small details, it did annoy me a little that Jen's power levels seemed to be in flux like throughout this series, because I mean, in that like courtroom, you know, scene when Titania first like is introduced like jen is able to like knock her out with one punch mm-hmm. but here that's not the case i mean it's really the ice cubes that take her out right yes i mean i i can give them the excuse that she didn't want to destroy the venue but i don't feel like she was really thinking about that at the time you know yeah i mean i guess, I guess she could be pulling her punches that's that's the old superman excuse uh-huh. right because <laughs> otherwise he'd be murdering every like five and dime crook you know he comes up against uh, because I also winced when uh, Titania punched uh, Jen in human form and she went flying. I was like, that would fucking kill someone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this but, isn't the boys, you know, they're yeah, not going to do I mean, that. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but I mean, considering the tone of the series, I think it's totally forgivable. I mean, she did just defeat once again, Titania with ice and embarrassment. So, yes. 
Meanwhile, outside the wedding, Mr. Immortal comes face to face with his former partners, and all their demands, of course, which Nikki finds solutions for each of their individual issues with Mr. Immortal, while Mallory, you know, stops him from running away from conflict as he has his entire life, it seems. When asked, you know, how they came to discover that Mr. Immortal had powers, one of his former partners speaks up about, you know, getting a link from a forum site called Intelligentsia, where they found footage of him resurrecting. Later in the episode, Mallory and Nikki actually visit the site and find a you know, post filled with hate for She-Hulk, with many users discussing how they might be able to kill her. Mallory is quick to want to you know hide this information from Jen, as she feels it just wouldn't be good for her mental health. But Nikki ends up leaving a voicemail on Jen's phone about it anyway. Well, we'll talk more about Intelligentsia in a little bit. But once again, I really have to applaud the writers of the show and like how they keep on like masterfully like trolling the trolls. Like it's pretty impressive because you know there's forums out there like, like this that exists about the show right now. Our more whimsical episode ends mysteriously after we see that someone has been watching Jen's interactions with Josh during the wedding. On a computer screen, a message comes up from Intelligentsia user Hulking asking if the next phase of the plan was ready to go as the camera camera pans around to show a lab of scientists, with one of them replacing the needle head used by the Wrecking Crew to pierce She-Hulk's skin. This time, they're going to be using a much thicker needle. While I did find most of the hijinks in this episode pretty damn entertaining, a lot more so than uh, the previous episode, I did kind of breathe a sigh of relief when we got the stinger at the end, because it felt like they are finally like moving like the main story forward like it just felt like everything with jen's blood has been kind of forgotten about over the last like three weeks so i'm glad that we're kind of getting back on track now and the name drop of intelligentsia is a pretty big deal um you know in the marvel comics it's a team of like super villain masterminds uh you know part of that group is uh modok uh, Red Ghost, Egghead, and none other than the leader, who we know is going to be reintroduced into the MCU with Captain America uh, 4. But, you know, ever since this whole idea has been introduced of someone trying to get possession of Jen's blood, I've been kind of speculating that it could be possibly the leader behind all of this. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't them who, you know, got the Hulk on that ship. Mm -hmm. um, and getting him off Earth. And to top things off, we also know that Modox is going to be part of the upcoming uh, Ant-Man sequel, which is coming out in February. Mm -hmm. So it really feels like things are lining up for some kind of like big reveal. That could all be bullshit, right? <laughs> and they could just be fucking with us, and it could all uh -huh. it could really be leapfrog, right? Like <laughs> something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Um, but I hope not, because like once again, like this group. They're partially responsible for, you know, turning uh, Thunderbolt Ross into Red Hulk. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe that character somehow involved. Um, you know, I, I don't think he'll make an appearance in this show, but maybe in the upcoming Thunderbolts, you know, film or somewhere else down the line. We know Foggy loves to connect his dots. So I thought this was a real nice little breadcrumb. I mean, I am happy that they are getting back on track and we, you know, we finally might see something going on with the whole blood storyline next episode. Maybe, 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 maybe one scene. We also uh, thought we we're going to get Daredevil this episode, too. So. Fair enough. <laughs> 
uh, I don't know. Last week's episode was okay. This one, I, I just there really wasn't anything that really got me going. I was bored through most of it. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know. It just wasn't for me. Uh, no, I get it to each his own because that's kind of how I felt about last week's episode. Oh, but to get back to uh, the point that I was trying to make earlier, because uh, now that we have all the information out there, I really felt like because um, Nikki left the voicemail, that's going to get into her head that all these all these people are trying to kill me. And she might start to think that Josh is a part of this group that's going oh, after her. Oh, you're talking about and Josh. And that's okay. going. Yeah, <laughs> you're back on Josh. Um uh, and that's what's going to like break up the relationship and he's not actually like you know a bad guy but she just thinks he is that's my theory at least <laughs> or maybe they totally like flip the script and it, it it's todd who's the trustworthy guy right because <laughs> <laughs> i could totally see a meta moment where like she hulk says you know something like you know i thought it was todd too like you could i could see that mm -hmm. i'm still like holding out hope too for like a live tyler like you know, appearance <laughs> you know just especially with everything with the you know red hulk and everything because intelligentsia uh, also helped create uh you know the red she hulk so i mean i think it's a cool idea um i think disney has enough money to bring Liv tyler in i just don't know if she wants to do it or not <laughs> what else is she doing christian i don't know man i mean aerosmith they're not making music videos anymore right no. Okay. <laughs> At least I hope not. <laughs> like she hasn't had a career after like the late uh -huh. 90s. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, also part of the problem is there's only three episodes left. So, yeah. uh, but maybe that's a little like, you know, dangling fruit for a second season. Who knows? But either way, make sure to join us next week as we break down episode seven of She-Hulk. All right, Christian, you got a film review for us this week? Yes, I saw The Woman King. Warning, spoiler alert. Minor spoilers for The Woman King ahead. You have been warned. And now, our feature presentation. An evil is coming. That threatens our kingdom. Our freedom. But we have a weapon. They are not prepared for. A historical epic inspired by true events that took place in the Kingdom of Dahomey, one of the most powerful states of Africa in the 18th and 19th centuries. The Woman King's directed by Gina Prince Bithwood, forgive me if I destroyed that name, and stars Viola Davis and Lashana Lynch. The Woman King as a film definitely took me by surprise because I definitely expected more of a biopic you know, feel than what was given based off what I at least saw in the trailers. And while this is inspired by a real tribe, it's clear they went to tell their own fantastic story that gave us more action than some you know, Marvel projects today. And once I realized that's what this film was going to be, I found myself really falling into the narrative and enjoying this piece of badass cinema. The center of this story focuses around Viola Davis character and you know their inspiring dream to see the kingdom that they serve no longer rely on the selling of their own people as slaves along with other tribes that they sell as slaves. Viola is already a killer actress from what we've you know already seen in numerous projects but as the war general of the Dahomey 
I was really blown away by her performance. The pressure of being a leader while also dealing with personal demons and trauma was well written, and I can't imagine anyone else better for the role. However, I will say Lasana Lynch, who plays one of the general's right hands, Izoji, stole the show. The movie's second main like storyline really follows Nawi as played by Thuso Mabedu, who gets given you know away by her father to the king for being kind of too troublesome. Um, Nawi goes on this journey to become an Ajoji, who in many ways is the real life version of Marvel's Dora Milaje. Nawi quickly bonds and goes under the tutelage of Izoji, who from the get-go is just such a fun character to watch. Lashana Lich absolutely chewed up scenes every time she was either you know teaching the girls or slaying slavers. Some of the most fun moments in the film were the action sequences that were some of the most badass scenes choreographed this year. But at the same time, they're not the most practical or realistic, which plays into what I said up top in which, you know, this is 100% a work of fiction and should be treated as such rather than, you know, looked at as true historical events. Also, there was tons of great cinematography in this and anyone who knows me and has listened to the show in the past knows I can't stand when fight scenes are filled with jump cuts to try and, you know, hide the actor or hide their lack of choreography you know actually getting to see all these warriors fight in all their glory only amplified the viewing experience more and when the film isn't you know in the midst of these battles it also was capturing beautiful landscapes and scenes that fully immerse you into this story i mean to be honest my only real negatives you know really focuses on the more fantastic elements of the film there are definitely some characters with plot armor that is clear in the choreography um, and during these like massive battle sequences. But overall, this was plenty worth buying a ticket for and I'd gladly go see it again. So my grade for The Woman King is going to be an A minus and I highly recommend you check it out. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. This past week in gaming has been a doozy, with GTA 6 getting leaked with over 90 plus videos of alpha gameplay put out online. While the gameplay itself confirmed many rumors and reports, it's definitely not the way the developers wanted people you know, to have their first look of the game. Because unfortunately, the average consumer doesn't really understand the process of making a game. Negative reactions flooded the internet after the leaks, as judgment you know, was flung upon unfinished graphics and gameplay that we were never really meant to see and has warranted the question of what comes first in game development which many studios have come to you know the defense of rockstar showing off early stages of their own games and how graphics are rarely ever near complete even a couple months before release in which gta 6 is nowhere near personally i shouldn't have been surprised by the reaction it got but when i saw the footage i was more you know impressed by the ai's reaction to the main character looking like you know, a continuation of what we got from GTA 5, but with some more lifelike and randomized moments from NPCs. The diner video that was, you know, out there showed NPCs like sitting in their booths, terrified rather than just running away, allowing the player to actually rob them. And gunplay, of course, looked more cinematic than ever, but that was just my personal opinion. 
The massive leak hasn't stopped production for the game, as we did hear from Rockstar in how they're disappointed it happened, but are continuing to push forward. I'm assuming with where they are with the game, they were probably on track to give us a trailer in 2023, perhaps you know during summer if I had to guess, with a 2024 release window. The current investigation going on has pointed towards a you know like 17-year-old hacker from the UK, at least with connections to the overall leak. And there are of course a ton of concerns right now about the possibility of the source code being put there out online that would ultimately allow you know an in-depth look at not only how the game works but the ability to copy and create their own version entirely or find ways to you know further exploit GTA 6 upon release. So these are definitely dark times for one of the largest franchises in gaming, but we will continue to follow along the development and release of GTA 6 as more news arrives. Another story I wanted to give an opinion on was Marvel, you know, confirming that there are no plans for a shared universe with their games. Bill Roseman, vice president of Marvel Games, explained that they don't want to put any constraints on game developers to fit within a singular universe or multiverse, which makes sense. You know, this definitely allows for more types of games to be made and explored, but it's still surprising to hear that Marvel would go against their already winning formula as far as the games go. However, with Spider-Man being being a Sony interactive project with Insomniac working on them, I wouldn't be too surprised if any of the Insomniac titles crossed over with Spider-Man. After all, the team is currently working on a Wolverine game as well as multiple sequels to Marvel's Spider-Man as it was a massive hit for PlayStation. So I could see them you know, going in their own way and making a small universe of games on their own. Currently, Spider-Man Miles Morales has been announced to be playable on PC, same as you know the first Spider-Man game. So if you haven't tried out either, I highly recommend giving them a play on PC if you don't have a PlayStation. Currently, I'm nearing the end of Horizon Zero Dawn on PS5, and we will be moving on to Forbidden West afterwards, along with playing several other games, including horror games that we're going to be doing all October long, starting next weekend. So make sure to you know, stop by our streams on Twitch to catch more amazing nerd show content where we are live reacting to things and playing plenty of games. But all right, enough of that. Now let's move on to wrestling. Blackpool Cuckold Club? I want to wish them best of luck because what's happening tonight is they're not fighting for the world title. No, they're fighting to lose the world title to Maxwell Jacob Friedman. All right, Christian, night one of AEW Dynamite's Grand Slam event is in the books. Uh, what are your thoughts, man? I had a good time with today's episode of Dynamite for the most part. Uh, there was a clunky parts here and there, but nothing that, you know, was too egregious that would make me hate this episode or be upset with it. You know what? I, I kept on thinking just how lucky they are that they had this event already scheduled. Like, I felt like this was just the perfect way for them to kind of recapture momentum. Not only, like, tonight, but over mm -hmm. the last couple weeks. Like, you know, coming like after the bullshit that went down at uh, All Out and everything like that, the fact that they had something to move on to so quickly and kind of like, you know, 
wash the bad taste out of like fans mouths right away i think was just a godsend because right now i feel like they're really like rallying as a company yeah i think we were talking before that you know how it's like oh this just feels too too much at one time you know all out happens and then they only have two weeks to build to something well thank god that they had this you're you're absolutely right there you know it's absolutely been a distraction <laughs> from everything that went down yeah with i mean not even a distraction i think it was just the perfect way to kind of like reset the table um, you know, mm. seeing that they had to have another tournament and everything like that. But having this event to like really refocus the product was just, you know, such a big help. Uh, you know, everything that went down with like Punk and the Bucks feels like it took place, you know, months ago. Um, now, I'm sure once the investigation's over and we start hearing about like, you know, the aftermath, that's all going to change. But right now, I mean, it really feels like they're back to where they were before All Out. So before we get started, I've, I've got to give credit where credit's due. Um, last year, I don't know if you remember, we really kind of blasted them for, like, the look of the show. Um, you know, they, here they are, you know, in this, you know, awesome stadium for the first time with with one of their biggest like crowds of the year and it looked like any other like dynamite. Uh, well, it seems like they actually learned from their mistakes because this year that wasn't the case. Uh, they lit this fucker up. Uh, you could see like everybody in the stadium and just how many people were actually there. Tons of spotlights going back and forth. Like it looked like they were like wrestling on like the gates of heaven. Like this thing was so fucking lit. <laughs> uh, I thought it was really like nicely done though. Like the show felt special and big. Uh, so I, I got to give yes. him credit. No, it looked like an actual pay-per-view event that you would get from AEW. So I think it looked better than a lot of their pay-per-view events, honestly. So, um, and it's such a cool stadium. There's no reason to hide it mm -hmm. in the shadows and shit. You know, like you want to show off that you have this giant audience watching your product. So I'm, I don't know. It was really nicely done this this year. But all right, to start off this week's card, we had Chris Jericho defeating Claudio for the Ring of Honor Heavyweight Championship. So I thought this was a great way to start off the show. Um, you know, just the optics of the crowd, you know, all singing along to Jericho's song and everything. You know, a big title match. You know, uh, they made sure to put stakes on it with Jericho trying to capture his eighth title um, his eighth world title, that is. So, I mean, it, it made it feel like a big deal, um, which took a lot because this kind of like came out of nowhere. Uh, but, you know, all week long on social media, you know, Jericho's been really pushing like being the Ocho. So I'm sure there's going to be about five shirts gotcha. in the, you know, within the next week. I was like, is there something <laughs> special about this that I'm unaware of? Or is he just <laughs> making this up? <laughs> it's kind of like making it up, but it is a cool stat. Uh -huh. You know, the fact that he's held all these like world titles in different companies. So it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, I mean, he's going to be probably one of the only people to ever do it. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it made the match feel bigger and more important, uh, especially since it all started with like Jericho, just like, you know, as an afterthought mentioning that, you know, maybe I should go after the Ring of Honor title. So, uh, but yeah, no, I, I thought this was a hard hit hitting, like well-worked match to the surprise of no one. 
Um, you know, you've got, you know, two talents like Jericho and Claudio in the ring together. Jericho's just on his ninth life. I don't know how he keeps <laughs> on pulling this shit off. Like, this is the best run I feel like he's had in AEW this past year. Like, the all the matches that, you know, he's had consecutively, like, I mean, he's really on a tear right now. Um, you know, so I, I really think he's, like, in his prime again, AEW-wise, somehow. Like, I don't know how he keeps on doing it, because, like... Six months ago, I'd been like, yeah, you know, maybe this will be his last year. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> He just felt like he was just kind of like losing steam and everything and kind of going through the motions. But, you know, like I said, he's found that like, you know, third or fourth wind at this point in his career. Damon, Once he's again, a fucking so- wizard. All right. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I love, you know, the dynamic he had going here with Claudio just kind of being like the ultimate, like, anti-Ring of Honor guy, really spitting in the face of everything that company represents, refusing to shake hands right up front, uh, you know, uh, cheating to win. Uh, you know, I, I it feels like you've got this ultimate heel now with your title and it kind of gives like almost this like mission statement to the brand, you know, especially if they're still like, you know, shopping around for a deal, mm-hmm. um, you know, like you can really present Chris Jericho as like your figurehead and then you've got a built in storyline right away, um, you know, especially if you if they do have a, a TV deal. You know, in the works, like you start off with this massive heel holding your title and there's this quest to like, you know, regain it, um, to restore honor yes. to Ring of Honor. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it just it just feels perfect, you know, and it really kind of mirrors what Tony did in the beginning with AEW. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to have that, you know, superstar up front, you know, selling your product and getting people interested in it. So why not try to replicate what worked so well in the past? Like, I hate the fact that, you know, Claudio lost the belt so soon after winning it. But if it's for the sake of a storyline, I think it's okay. Like, Claudio's not going to really lose anything in losing this match in the long run. You know, he could always have another title win in the near future. Um, If I was going to guess anything, they're probably going to go into like some kind of program between, you know, Jericho and Garcia over the belts, Mm -hmm. especially like after seeing their interaction on the ramp where they just kind of like half-assed, like high-fived each other. Um, You could tell Garcia was still disappointed. Um, You know, you even had Jericho attacking one of the founding fathers on the outside of the ring, (laughs) which I was actually kind of expecting Garcia to come out at that point. Um, but honestly, I think it's better the way they're working it. You know, it's a slow burn. I'm sure like eventually Jericho's going to push Garcia too far. And, you know, that's when the, the, the feud's going to really erupt between the two. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be a title versus title situation though. Like maybe something happens where, you know, Garcia ends up like losing the title. Maybe Jericho costs garcia the title and then that like prones garcia going after jericho's title probably i could see that where it's like he's jericho's trying to use jas to like get him a win and it just does it backfires completely yeah yeah or he does it to teach garcia a lesson so um but yeah no i mean i feel like that would be a great 
program to really kick off, you know, a TV run for Ring of Honor, if they do have one in place. A lot of people are like really like speculating right now that, you know, since Jericho's won this belt, that something's coming in the near future for Ring of Honor. I don't know if that's the case, but we'll have to just wait and see, I guess. Either way, it brings more into, you know, importance to this title right now on, you know, AEW's television, gives them an actual storyline to play around with rather than just these random matches that they've been having. Exactly. After that match, we got a video package, kind of an abbreviated version of what we saw from previous weeks of, you know, what's going to happen between the two of them to kind of amp up their match. Yeah, tonight. just, yeah, hyping it yeah. up. Um, once again, I've got to give credit where credit's due. Um, recently, in the last couple of months, AEW has been doing a much better job of really hyping up their own matches and doing these kind of video packages, um, you know, getting people excited, you know, the audience at home uh, for what's to come on the show, uh, you know, and, you know, kind of giving us a rundown and, you know, making all the events that, you know, led to this big match feel important, uh, you know, so it's not just another match on the card. So I think that kind of stuff is important. Um, so I'm hoping to see more of that in the future from AEW. After the commercial break, we had the Acclaimed going up against Swerve in Our Glory. And the Acclaimed became our new AEW World Tag Team Champions. Yeah, to the surprise of no one. Uh, but hey, I mean, it was I think I think it was the perfect moment to pull the trigger. I mean, the crowd was off the chain. You know, they're primed, ready for the acclaim to capture those titles. I don't think this match was anywhere near as good as their match at All Out. Yeah. Um, but it got the job done, you know. I mean, it was fine for the most part. It just got a little clunky in the middle. I, You know, for me, it was when uh, Caster faked that injury, the knee injury. One mm. uh, trying to do the, the mic drop. I just felt like that was the moment just to go for the Wayne. They didn't need to like do the fake injury to, you know, get the crowd even more excited because honestly, I felt like it took the crowd out of it for a little bit. You know, it was so awkward. And then like at home, it was poorly shot where I couldn't even tell exactly what the fuck happened. I was like, did Swerve knock him off the rope or did he just fall like that on his own? I didn't know what the hell was going on because I knew he was going for the elbow. So the fact that he like just like fell on two feet and then like grabbed his knee just felt weird mm -hmm. to me. I was like, what the hell happened? And the the replay didn't even make sense of it. So they just <laughs> didn't even capture it well uh, on camera. So um, but yeah, but I mean, it wasn't just an at home thing, though, because they took the crowd out of it for a little bit. Because at that point, the crowd was at such a fever pitch that it, it just... It, it felt like a wasted like moment almost because um, then they had to totally like work again to like, you know, reheat them up. Now, eventually they got them back to that point, but I don't know. It just felt like the right time to pull the trigger, you know, and get that big pin. So um, but, yeah, overall, it was a fantastic moment, um, you know, something that I think fans will look back on fondly. Uh, you know, I'm really happy for, you know, Caster and Bowens, you know, they, they're kind of like, you know, day one guys, yes. um, you know, AEW originals and everything. And like, if you told me in the beginning of the year that they would be like holding on to those titles and be like the most over thing on like the show, I'd call you a damn liar. Like they were, <laughs> they've always been over, but you know, with such a stacked tag team division, 
Like, it just felt like they were never really going to ever get their hands on those titles. And the fact they were able to get, like, nuclear white hot. I mean, it just, it felt like it came out of nowhere. But it's it's well-deserved because those guys have been working so hard, you know, over the last couple years. I mean, you look at them now compared to where they are at, like, to start off, you know, their run in AEW. It's night and day. And I think just, like, now seeing like what they're capable of and knowing like they can probably get into a feud with just about any tag team and make it something fun. It's going to be exciting to see where they go with the title. I don't know if they go into like a rematch with um, Swerve and Our Glory or if they just start off new with something you know fresh in the upcoming weeks. No, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, they, I, like you said, they, they've always had the charisma. It's just now mm-hmm. I feel like they finally clicked together in the ring. But it takes two to tango. And, I mean, you have to give a lot of credit to, you know, Keith Lee and Swerve. I mean, they were just the perfect opponents Mm -hmm. for these guys. Swerve especially, you know, like just, I mean, he's a fantastic heel. Like what he's doing in the ring right now is just next level stuff. My guess is they'll probably have one more match together, Swerve to our glory, like Mm -hmm. as a team. And then, you know, we'll get the breakup angle because like even tonight, you know, you had a few miscues here and there. Swerve hit Lee in the head with the boom box, um, which I didn't even realize Bone was still coming out with, honestly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there was a few different moments here and there. Lee got pissed off at Swerve when he uh, interrupted the acclaimed uh, scissoring. In the middle of the match, which I was like, why are you getting pissed off about We were this? all upset. We were all upset, Damon. <laughs> sure. I was like, <laughs> he should be. Like, they turned their backs on you in the middle of the ring. <laughs> so they're really kind of like playing up, mm-hmm. you know, this like heel baby face dynamic they have on the team. So I don't feel like they're going to last much longer, but I'm really looking forward to the program. They're going to work together. It's a real testament to like his talent that like even though the crowd was 100% behind the acclaim they were still having a hard time really like booing lee in the ring mm-hmm. just because like the shit he was doing was you know <laughs> breathtaking for a man that size to be moving like that is insane no that runner whip was awesome Oh, my God. And they soaked it in. (laughs) So while this wasn't necessarily a great match, it was still a fantastic moment. Speaking of tag team action, we had an interview with the FTR in the back uh, where the ass boys decided to kind of ridicule them. I'm assuming we're going to get a matchup in the future, but it seems like FTR wants a date with the acclaimed. Yeah, I mean, they've been complaining about being the number one contenders for like it feels like ever uh-huh. at this point. <laughs> um, this felt a little contrived, like, uh, you know, just a way to throw a roadblock in front of FTR before they finally get their title shots. Um, I just I don't see it coming against the acclaimed, though. Like, do you have babyface versus babyface like that? Like, I, I feel like when FTR gets their title shots, finally, they're going to win it at all. Right. Mm -hmm. So I just can't imagine that happening anytime soon with the acclaim just getting those belts and seeing how red hot they are. 
Um, so I, I'm guessing this this is going to be kind of an extensive program. Now, I mean, I do feel like the Ass Boys have come into their own at this point. But with that being said, like, it's hard for me to imagine, like, a feud with the Ass Boys lasting that long. So, I mean, maybe... Maybe they have someone, like, challenge them for the ROH titles, and that can kind of, like, distract them for a little bit. You remember at uh, the Ring of Honor uh, pay-per-view, Wheeler and uh, Claudio came out and had a stare-down with FTR. Oh, yeah. After they main-evented against uh, the Briscoes. So, like, I don't know what the fuck happened to that. <laughs> so maybe they can go into that program. Yeah, they're both again. free and open now since they both lost their titles. Yeah, they need just a storyline reason to keep the acclaimed and FTR apart right now. So, you know, I feel like that's the best way to do it is just, you know, start a feud over the ROH titles. And that way, like, you can make sense of them not getting their title shot mm. yet. Well, I feel like the gun club is going to do something to like, you know, kind of jump over FTR, whether they cheat to win a bunch or what. But I feel like gun club versus the acclaimed is going to be their first storyline. No, I I'm, I I think you're right. And, you know, maybe it's just a match that, you know, somehow they, you know, squeak out a win over, you know, FTR. But then, like, I mean, that's it only takes a week or two before you get your title shot. So. I think you need something for FTR to be doing uh-huh. in the meantime. And, I, you know, why not, you know, actually defend those ROH belts, you know, while you're at it. Or, I mean, the New Japan titles. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I totally forgot that got the IWGP uh, titles also. So, I mean, that's another route they could go. After that, we had an interview with Wheeler Yuta um, to share his thoughts on the main event. Uh, and MJF came out and interrupted him. I don't know why they thought it was a good idea to have Yuta going toe-to-toe with MJF. Um, he started bringing up his fiance for some weird reason, and it, it didn't feel like it went anywhere. I don't know if he botched a line or something like that, but it, I don't know. Um, you know, the crowd turned on Yuta right away. Yes. Um, you know, it really took MJF, you know, getting to Shivani's face and, like, shoving him down before, like, the crowd was on Yuta's side. Um, Shivani, man, I, uh, he's been mixing it up lately. I don't know what's going on. I mean, the guy's near 70, so he needs to be careful. But he's a great way to get heat right now. So um, as long as he doesn't end up like Michael Cole in an orange leotard in the middle of the ring, I, I'm fine. You know, just... I don't I don't see that happening <laughs> at all. <laughs> Regardless of the earring and the mullet, he does have some sense of pride. So <laughs> um <laughs> But anyway, uh, you know, this is definitely going to lead to some kind of match between Wheeler and MJF. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't announce it, you know, early next mm-hmm. week. So um, I do feel like, you know, before MJF captures that, you know, world title, we need to see him in the ring a couple of times at least. What, do we get a, a reverse MJF's type of story where he goes through each member of the, the Blackpool Combat Club? I don't know, man. He's all about working smart, not uh-huh. hard. So <laughs> maybe, but I find it doubtful. Um, and we'll talk about MGF's situation later on, you know, when we get to the main event. But yeah. But once again, just like, you know, I was you know saying that AEW was lucky that they had this like Grand Slam event on the schedule, you know, after the events of All Out. 
God damn, AEW is lucky that MJF came back yes. when he did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he has been busting his ass this week. Have you been seeing all the interviews he's been doing? No. On AEW's behalf? Like, he's the only person I see out there right now. Um, and he's been great, like, really hyping up the company and everything. Like, in character still. Um do yourself a favor and check out some of those interviews. It, it is really like masterful work. I mean, to be like this ultimate heel character, but still be able to put over the company in a convincing way that doesn't feel contrived. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty damn impressive. So Tony's got to be happy that, you know, he came back when he did, um, you know, it, it just all kind of worked out because he's really just helped like reshape the narrative, you know, for AEW. We then get a backstage segment from earlier in the day with Tony Schiavone interviewing Jade Cargill and then getting interrupted by Diamante and her backup Trina, the rapper Trina, um, apparently, uh, for their TBS title match at Rampage. Yeah, I, I had to look that up. Um, <laughs> I'm not, you know, ashamed to admit, uh, you know, they, they teased that last week. Um, is, is she a big deal, Christian? I I don't know who she is, to be honest. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> Maybe it's like a regional thing or something. Like, you know, she's a big deal in New York, and that's why she's in her corner. But whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, this felt pretty much, you know, paint by number for AEW right now mm. and Jade. So uh, they're really censoring, like, the swearing a lot. Now. Oh, yeah. I caught them censoring shit. I was like, oh. They've been doing that for the last couple of weeks. Um, I thought it was more about like limiting the use of it, but it just feels like at this point they're just outright censoring everyone's use of it. So um, I thought they were going to start rationing again because there was a point where like everyone was saying it every fucking promo. So I get it, but <laughs> it's because at that point you're just kind of desensitized. Uh-huh. To it. But now it's just it just feels like a banned word, you know, so I don't know if that's an edict from Warner or if that's like self-imposed by Tony. Either way, I'm fine with the wrestlers using other words than shit. Yes. (laughs) After a while, it feels a little Uh lazy. So especially when it feels like every heel's relying on, you know, swearing to get their promos over. It just feels like elementary school kids using the same, you know, curse word over and over again because they just learned it, you know. (laughs) After that, we had Pac defeating Orange Cassidy to retain the AEW All-Atlantic Championship. I thought this was okay. Uh, They did lose the crowd for a little bit, but that's to be expected Mm -hmm. after, you know, two, you know, insanely hot matches. Um, You know, I... They worked hard to get them back, but I don't feel like they ever, like, got them completely back, if you know what I mean. Uh, I was surprised by the finish. Uh, I was kind of expecting Orange to win. I mean, Orange does a lot of fucking losing. Uh, (laughs) In the fact that Pac, like, had to cheat to win, um, even though, you know, he's a bastard, was a little surprising to me because it feels like he's not necessarily a heel right now. Um, so I don't know if this is the start of a major heel turn for him, uh, you know, because, I mean, when he's with uh, the rest of Death Triangle, they've been pretty much baby faces, you know, even though they're vicious, uh-huh. and, you know, twisted and everything like that. 
But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised with Pack cheating if uh, Orange doesn't end up getting a rematch because of that. I mean, it wasn't at least on the level of what we've seen them do before. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was Cassidy's breakout match mm-hmm. at uh, Revolution, right? Just a couple of years ago. Exactly. So, yeah, no, um, I, I was really kind of excited for this match. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's just like where it was placed on the card and the lack of like reaction from the crowd that kind of took it down a notch. Mm-hmm. But it, it definitely didn't feel like it had like the same like vibe as their first encounter. Um, so, but that was such a special match and that was really Orange's coming out party. So it, it'd be hard to recapture that, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just, I don't know if I want to see a rematch, honestly, at this point. Um, we know Ethan Page is supposed to be, you know, gunning for the All-Atlantic yeah. title, which is another weird factor because if Pac is acting like a, a heel, heel, you exactly. have a heel versus heel situation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to be in Canada in the next couple weeks, so everyone just has been kind of assuming you know, since Paige is from Canada, that's where he would be getting his title shot. Um, maybe that is the case, and maybe it ends up being like a triple threat match or something between like, you know, Orange, uh, Pac, and Paige. Oh, I can see that. Or maybe, you know, this is the rise of Dan Danhausen. You know, he starts getting wins and goes up for the AEW All-Atlantic Championship, gets the championship, goes up against Ethan Page. Danhausen, man, he's so over he doesn't need a fucking title, honestly. <laughs> It'd just be a waste to give him a belt. Like <laughs> the guy gets a main eventer pop when he comes out. It's uh-huh. insane. Like I was watching Dark. Right? Dark, yes. mind you. Uh-huh. And when he came out, it was like fucking Hogan like, <laughs> in 1986, you know, coming down to save Macho Man. I was like, what is going on? This is a dark match. <laughs> Everyone loves that Dan House. Mm-hmm. Huge pop when he beat uh, Peter Avalon. That was insane. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Avalon. Yes. <laughs> Uh, anyway, up next we had the fatal four way between all the women currently: Tony Storm versus <laughs> Britt Baker, Serena Deeb, and Athena for the AEW Women's Championship. I Tony mean, Storm it, winning, of course. I mean, if you watch Dynamite, it would feel like this is all the women, uh-huh. right? Because that's the only women that get featured on the show. Um, regardless of me not completely understanding why this match was even happening, like I, I still don't understand why Athena was in this match. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it definitely felt like a little lazy booking on Tony's part, which is, which isn't the norm. Cause usually he gives everything a reason for happening. Um, but regardless, I thought this was a damn good match. And I mean, regardless, Athena really shined here. So I, I'm happy that she was in the match, even though I didn't understand why she was in the match. Um, I don't know what's coming out of this i thought they would set something up between deeb and storm um that just felt like the program that they were going to go into i thought we were gonna you know see everything come to a head between baker and uh jamie hater but that seems to be out the window and i don't know if it's because of the surprise that we got after the match um, you know, that they decided to kind of like pump the brakes on everything and, you know, leave it kind of wide open. But after Storm got kind of an abrupt pin 
out of nowhere on Baker. Uh, she's attacked by Brit and uh, Serena. Uh, they're both beating down Athena and Tony. Uh, when Hater runs down the ramp and it looks like she's going to make the save. But for some reason, they decide not to pull the trigger. Uh, they have uh, JB join forces again with Brit and help out beating down our baby faces. My jaw was on the ground. Like, I couldn't believe what I was <laughs> seeing because it was like, really? Like, it just is like the time was right, like, to pull the trigger on this. Like, I, I don't understand why we're delaying this even longer. Um, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, I, I, I understand wanting to do, like, long-form storytelling on your wrestling show. But, I mean, we're two years in on this storyline, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they've been together for quite a while at this point. And it's been feeling like something was going to happen for quite a while at this point. And here's the thing, like, the audience is primed for it. Like, they're ready. They want to cheer Hater, right? And the fact that you're not pulling the trigger, like, you could you could miss your moment, so I don't know. I, I just feel like it's a missed opportunity here. Um, but regardless, the beat down continues and it continues and it continues to the point where you're like, okay, someone's coming out to even the odds. But little did I know that wrestler was going to be Soraya, the wrestler formerly known as Paige, you know, coming down to the ring, making the save. You know, all the, you know, heels bail, even the baby faces bail for some reason. <laughs> uh, the crowd is going fucking nuts. Um, we did hear rumors today that, you know, she had at least had talks with AEW over the summer. But I had no clue that she, you know, actually signed. Um, so, I mean, huge pop. It was a pretty big fucking deal. It looks like she's definitely going to be wrestling again. So, you know, as long as she's healthy and ready to go, I'm glad that she's going to get to go out on her own accord. Yes. And I'm going to be an optimist here, <laughs> even though, you know, I think I say this every time Tony signs a big like, you know, female wrestler to his company. Um, you know, maybe this is the signing that, you know, brings a new refocus on the women's division and who knows, maybe we actually get like, you know, two matches, you know, two women's matches on dynamite for now on. Um, I don't know. I maybe mean, it would be a big mistake <laughs> to not Please. push her. You know? <laughs> well, I think they'll push her, but they'll push her in the way that they push like every, like debuting, you know, woman's wrestler in the company where she gets that, like, month or two, you know, program, and then she gets lost in the shuffle. And that happens time and time again because Tony just refuses to give the women enough time on Dynamite. Mm -hmm. You know, like they get basically two segments. You get an interview segment and you get one wrestling match. Um, and that's it. So I'm hoping, because like I said, I'm going to be optimistic with this big acquisition, like, because I know, I know Sarai did not come cheap. That this will kind of force Tony's hand to at least give the women more time, you know. So I'm hoping this actually forces Tony's hand 
to actually like invest in the women's division and give them more time on his product, you know, in the form of at least two matches every dynamite. Well, unfortunately, I I mean, with Jamie Hayter's not turning uh, right now, I feel like it's just going to be, you know, a trios, you know, thing going forward with uh, Athena and Paige and uh, Tony all going up against Serena, Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker. And then Tony will just be holding the title for the next couple weeks without any actual challengers or anything going after it. It'll just be that. Yeah, I mean, you honestly, I can't argue with that. You're probably right. Like, I'm guessing we're going to get some kind of, like, you know, trios match out of this. Uh-huh. Um, but hopefully that's just, you know, the next couple weeks. I mean, maybe it's their way of protecting Soraya in her first match back. Um, but I don't know. I feel like her first match needs to be big, though. Right? Like her first match in AEW and her first match after how many years? Mm-hmm. So I mean, maybe they save that for the pay per view. You know, maybe they save that for November. Um, you know, and build up to it. Um, or you know, do they have another? They they probably have some kind of big TV event coming up, right? Although I'm sure they probably have some like big, like you know, special dynamite also in the works. You know. Um, you know, Tony loves his themed dynamites, uh, so maybe it'll take place during one of those. Um, perhaps. I mean, November is only what, like a month away. So, I mean, they could wait. Oh, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it, but I love like Serena Deeb's like whole theme when she comes out. I, I something about like underground rap with Serena Deeb coming down to come beat everyone's asses. Wow, while she's doing <laughs> yoga. Yeah, while she's doing <laughs> yoga. Awesome. It her, just works. Her, Okay, well, I, I hate her video package. Like, I don't understand. You have this hard-ass, you know, like, killer in the ring, and, like, we've got her doing yoga on her video package. I don't know. It makes me think, like, killer mom coming down, you know? It does. It does go. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole new gimmick for her. <laughs> Like someone fucked with her kid during uh-huh. soccer practice or something. <laughs> She's ready to stretch him. I could totally see her like pulling the best friends and like, you know, coming down in the fucking like minivan, you know. <laughs> but I do hope, I do hope that she does get her like, you know, title feud mm-hmm. with Storm. Like, I don't see her walking away with the belt, but who knows? I mean, maybe, maybe she does. And when Thunder comes back, you don't have her going up against, you know, a, a super baby face Tony Storm. Because I'm guessing Thunder's coming back at some point. Yeah, but she, I mean, she could come back heel. <laughs> it's hard, though, to make a return as a heel, especially mm. when she was such a baby face before she left. So you got to give her motives, at least, you know, besides, you know, Backstage drama. Not that they wouldn't use that since we've seen that a bunch with her storylines. Yeah, but I feel like you need to set that up at mm-hmm. least. So, I mean, I, I guess they could do that. Do I want that? No. no. <laughs> uh, after that, we had a Darby Allen video package with uh, him carrying a body bag. I'm hoping Sting was inside the body bag the entire time as he traveled through New York to get to Rampage. Well- well, I mean, when this episode drops, Rampage has already happened. Uh-huh. Um, we haven't seen it, though. But uh, according to spoilers, Muda, the great Muda, makes an appearance during their tag match. 
So I'm kind of hoping that it was Muda <laughs> in the body, in the body bag. <laughs> How cool would that be if like Darby comes out with the body bag, he leaves it on the ramp, and like in the middle of the fucking match, Great Muda, you know, jumps out of the fucking thing and starts misting everyone. Don't like, be give a me that moment. <laughs> <laughs> But with that said, we're here at the main event where John Moxley became your AEW world champion once again after defeating Brian Danielson. Yes, this is his third title reign. I guess they're not counting the interim. I guess not, because I was going to count it as four, and then they said it on the screen third time. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's weird. Um, but it is what it is, whatever. Um, you know, he's the only three-time champion at this point, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty big fucking deal. Um, like I said last week, it felt like the way they were setting everything up, that it was leading to Moxley recapturing the belt. Um, and, I mean, between his rah-rah speech and, you know, him missing out on his vacation <laughs> to be there, and <sighs> just his interaction with MJF, I mean, I... I don't know. I'm totally fine with this. I know a lot of people were kind of disappointed that, you know, Danielson didn't walk away with the belt. Um, and they, I think part of it was just wanting something new, you know, for AEW, um, you know, at least in the, the, the title scene. Um, but I think the better dynamic for MJF is going up against Moxley. So it just, you know, they're oil and water, mm. polar opposites. So there's just so much to really like play off of because obviously with MGF having the poker chip and I mean, they wouldn't let us forget it tonight because they showed him at <laughs> nauseum during the match to the point where I was going to lose my fucking mind because while it, it didn't seem to bother like, you know, the crowd in attendance, it sure like took me out of the match at times like they were cutting away to MGF way too often like i understand why you want to show him you know in the wings um like literally sitting there with the poker chip (laughs) but like you needed like maybe like one or two shots Mm -hmm. you didn't need it every fucking 30 seconds on top of that it was so well lit that little box area that you could see him during the match like it wasn't like he was gone and out of sight completely and they're doing like picture and picture uh-huh. and everything. Like it was too much. You know, the split screen. Um, it it was like a new trick that they learned all of a sudden. <laughs> like it, the, the the production team and they just couldn't like let it go. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Because they did it also uh, during uh, the women's match, you know, to show the uh, women on the outside of the rings uh, reaction to Paige's return. So, uh, but yeah, no, it, it was way too much and it did kind of take me out of the match. I thought the match was fine. Um, I don't think it was as good as their first match, mm-hmm. um, but they also felt like they were kind of pressed for time. Like I kept on looking at my watch, um, you know, before the match, like, holy shit, they only have like, you know, 17 minutes left. They need to, you know, get this match started. Yeah. What, what's going on? Um, you know, I, I'm guessing they wanted to show MJF in one of the suites to kind of give everyone the Iggy that he wasn't going to cash in. So they wouldn't be like completely disappointed when his music doesn't hit. Um, Cause I was like, okay, well, if he's all the way up there, there's no way he's cashing in. So I was like, okay, well, they're trying to get that out of the way. But then like part of me was like, unless they keep on cutting away to him. And then like in the last two minutes, they cut away to him and he's just gone. 
and that kind of lets you know, oh, he's coming down, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like a bigger moment. But obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, at the end, when it was like cutting out uh, there and you see Danielson like pulling the title away from Regal. I was like, what is going on? I don't I don't know if there's been any reports yeah. about what happened Once again, afterwards. I, but- my guess is he pulled the title away from Regal because he wanted to present it to Moxley. Gotcha. So that that's my guess what happened. But I mean, who knows? Maybe, you know, Brian took Moxley out with the belt <laughs> and left him lame, you know. But yeah, I, I'm guessing he probably just handed the belt to Moxley and raised his hand or something. All in the name of sportsmanship. So, but yeah, I mean, the match was more than fine. The crowd was, you know, super into it. Um, and now we know where we're headed. Uh, you know, MJF versus Moxley. Uh they're really kind of playing up this whole like money in the bank type gimmick mm-hmm. with the poker chip, which I don't know. I have mixed feelings with because I hate money in the bank at this point. Um, Tony has gone on record in interviews saying that, you know, he'll sanction a match for MGF at any live events that he wants. Now, I don't know if that means he just come out whenever he wants and, you know, hand him the chip and cash in or if that's something that you know needs to just be discussed um you know prior my guess is you know he's gonna hold on to it until the fucking pay-per-view right like that's a money match there's no way that they're not doing that Uh pay-per-view although i mean tony fucking surprised us you know in the build to all out by having moxley and punk face off Two weeks before the pay-per-view, so yeah. I mean, who knows, right? He could. I mean, if they wanted to do the Money in the Bank route, they could have you know Mox be in a tough match, then MJF takes steals the title from him, then they go into the actual you know match between the two of them at the pay-per-view with MJF carrying. I it. don't, I don't want that. I I feel like that kind of cheapens MJF's moment too of winning the you know belt for the first time. I'd much rather see him win the belt at the pay-per-view, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and have that be a bigger moment. So he's like, not I a get, hero, though. I like I get what they. I, I know, but I just feel like it just feels cheap. I uh-huh. like having him just kind of win it on a whim, and then him just retain at the pay per view. It just feels like it lessens the moment and just kind of lessens the intrigue of the pay per view. Where if you have them like okay, well he's you know definitely going to cash in at the pay per view. I think people are going to be more invested in getting that pay per view, and I mean. I know they experimented and I understood why they were experimenting, you know, before all out, you know, kind of shaking things up and, you know, having, you know, Punk and uh, Moxley's match be a rematch at the pay-per-view, but it did not help them at all by rate wise. And while the pay-per-view did fine, it wasn't as successful as the other pay-per-views this year. So, and then there were other factors involved also but I, I do feel like you know the setup for that match you know ended up hurting you know the pay-per-view buy rates so i i just i don't know man and maybe part of it is i'm biased and i just hate the money in the bank at this point <laughs> and you're right it would totally be a, you know mjf's character to you know do it the wwe way mm-hmm. um you know and steal the title but I don't know, man. Like he could steal the title at the pay-per-view still, like, you know, uh, you know, and use the firm because we saw the firm come and say, I don't even know if we talked about uh, 
big cast. Oh no, we didn't out. state that he was there. No, he's fucking terrifying, right? <laughs> <laughs> like MJF doesn't need the firm; he just could use big cast like yeah. that. He's scary enough. Replacement uh, yeah. Wardlow, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, pretty much. Also, we do know that uh, Hangman is going to be uh, getting a title shot. Uh, I believe October 18th on the Tuesday Dynamite. Uh, he won the Battle Royal on Rampage, which neither of us have seen yet because we're recording on Wednesday, but we've read the spoilers. Mm-hmm. So um, could we see a scenario where you know, Hangman beats Moxley for that belt? Because remember, Moxley's supposed to be on fucking vacation. Yes. <laughs> well, that was that was one of the biggest reasons why I thought Brian was going to win. I was like, oh, well, you know, Moxley wants yes. a vacation too, you know, <laughs> some time off. But um, it's possible. I mean, if there's a big enough event between now and the pay-per-view, you have Paige win the title off of Moxley, and then you have Paige versus... Well, I guess that's that's probably why they're, you know, having the title shot on the Tuesday night, uh-huh. because they want to make sure people tune in, since it's a different day and everything like that. So I'm sure Tony will call it something special, right? <laughs> to get people interested, so... Um, I don't know, I'm down for Hangman versus Moxley. We, we've seen that match before, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, I'm sure it was a banger, and it's going to be a banger again. Um, but once again, I feel like you know Moxley and M versus Mark. But once again, I feel like Moxley versus MJF is where the money's at. So, um, you know, I, I I would be really surprised if Hangman walks away with the title. But at least he's getting a fucking title shot. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it might be two or three months too late, but at least he's getting a title shot again. I will say, though, with the whole poker chip thing, it, it's pretty smart. The fact that they, they have him, like, you know, teasing, cashing it in. Because mm. just like the money in the bank, it's it's like having your cake and eating it, too. Like, you know, it makes Dynamite and everything MJF, you know, does even more like can't miss TV. So, you know, even though I hate it, I get it. I just hope they don't do this every year, you know, with the poker chip. Because I feel like that will be too much. Uh, they'll probably just do it when they when they need something. When maybe. it's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> when a heel, you know, needs a loophole. But all right, join us next week for some more AEW talk. Well, that does it for this week. That's right. And as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, Damon, what are we talking about next week? Well, make sure to join us as we continue to break down the latest episodes of Andor and She-Hulk. But also, since the episode will be dropping in the first week of October, that means it's time for our annual horror month. It's spooky time, bitches. That's right, Christian. It's spooky time. So make sure to join us every week in October as we're going to go ahead and count down our favorite horror films of the past 
five decades. Yeah, that means the 70s to the 2010s. But if you're not a horror movie fan, that's okay, because we're going to have our regular show running, too. So Exactly. Like, I'm still going to get medieval on your asses with some Game of Thrones, and we're going to talk AEW each week. And like I said at the top, you know, all your regular, like, show breakdowns and nerd culture news. So just a little bonus horror movie fun. But all right, my name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. Gentlemen, I... 